For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? It's Wednesday, it's hump day, it's matinee day, and there's so much to celebrate if we take the time to do so. And tonight I am so excited of our very special guest tonight, Jamie Bernstein. I met Jamie a few years ago when she was actually here in my neighborhood uh, in Spark Hill, uh, right around the corner. Uh, she was doing a talk because her book had just come out, uh, Famous Father Girl. And this book is so incredible to me uh, for a lot of reasons uh, beyond just the story of a famous father, uh, but because it really is about family. And that's what I really get from this book. And I really want to delve in tonight and talk about all of these layers that go into this. And the fact, as she says uh, in an interview that I just read, uh, that every day she gets up and she goes into Leonard Bernstein land. Well, I've been in Leonard Bernstein land all day. I've been listening to the music. And I, I just want to look at a couple of photographs here that I've pulled up. And I want to show you how fortunate. I mean, just to be in this world of just being there, as the song from Hamilton goes, in the room where it happened. Just look at this. I mean, the magic that was there. But here she is. Jamie, I am so thrilled that you're here tonight. But before we delve in, I always ask my guests to start, who or what are you celebrating today? Today, just today. Just today. Uh, well, first of all, hi, Richard. Hi, Jamie. Well, I'm celebrating that I get to hang out with you for this hour. I think that's really cool. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm celebrating that summer is still with us and the weather is delish. And I'm up in uh, our my family's country place in Connecticut that we've We've clung to this house all these decades since we first got it when I was a little kid. And it turned out to be a godsend during COVID because it was the, the perfect little bolt hole to, to be in during all those tough months and months and months and months. It's a beautiful place. It's not that far from New York, so it's easy to get to. And such a vegetable garden we have right now. So, you know, it's my sworn duty to eat tomatoes at oh. least twice a day. That's like every night we have uh, tomatoes growing in our garden, you know, so I know what that's like. Anyone who has the luxury of being able to go out your garden and get homegrown tomatoes yep. and cucumbers and zucchini and squash, uh, well, there's nothing like it. It's true. And, and what's so great about August is that you try as hard as you can to eat it so that it doesn't spoil or go to the critters. But you know what? You always lose. The, the vegetables win. It's part of the fun is that no matter how hard you try, you can never get it all. So it's this wonderful sense of like the abundance tsunami, you know? 
So that's what I'm celebrating today. That's wonderful. And let's start there tonight because you are, you grew up in this world of show business and just to get your feet and your hands in the dirt and in the earth's surface and to really feel that you're part of something beyond the world of show business. And of course you were born right into it. Um, like myself, I was born a year into my parents' marriage, just as you were. Uh, and then I, I love the story that you tell about, uh, well, about you and the dog and the pillow at, on the yeah. very first page of the book. Yeah. And it reminded me of my sister, who I think is watching tonight, that, you know, I'm the oldest of four, uh, a sister, and we have two other brothers. And when the baby brother was born, uh, my sister crawled under the bed uh, of my uncle's house where we were waiting for my mom uh, to come home with the baby. And she said she was never coming out again <laughs> if, she was coming, if she was coming home with another brother. And then right there on the first page of your book, you're describing exactly what I went through with oh, my So that must have really spoken directly to you, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But if you can well, talk about this childhood and, you know, going right into this and that, uh, and I love the stories of the parties that were going on in your house and, uh, you know, just everything that was swirling around you as a, as a five-year-old and uh, beyond. Indeed, it was, it, it really was a swirl because there were, our parents had so many friends and it was this incredibly energetic, talented, driven blob of friends who were all at each other's houses most nights of the week. And you know what's very interesting is that I just started reading Mary Rogers Gettle's memoir, which is called Shy. Yes. <laughs> based on uh, Once Upon a Mattress, which she wrote the score of. And it's just amazing the overlap in this book between, uh, not surprisingly, her life and family and, and my life and family, there's just so many of the stories that she tells are about events that my parents were in. So I've been kind of reliving it through Mary all over again. Um, anyway, uh, this, this world I grew up in, by the way, was uh, Leonard Bernstein land, just for the record, not okay, Steve thank you Stein. for correcting that. I am so okay. thrilled that you uh, corrected me on this, and I apologize. It's okay. You know what? I used to care, and now I don't really care that much. But just for the record, I thought I'd mention it's Stein. I don't know why it's Stein, really. So in, in the United States, S-T-E-I-N is usually pronounced Steen, and I don't know why. But my grandfather, Sam Bernstein, came from Ukraine, our now poor, benighted Ukraine, although it was still pretty poor and benighted back when he had to escape because of the pogroms on the Jewish shtetls. So I'm sure that if he were alive today, he would be ambivalent or, or confused about how, you know, related emotionally to feel to the motherland, given that they basically forced him to flee. But in any case... He pronounced it Bernstein. But, you know, I have this theory that because the Russians have this in-between thing, Stein, which is usually 
written in English as S-T-E-Y-N. Mm-hmm. And I think it was right in between. And so at Ellis Island, sometimes they interpreted it Steen and sometimes they interpreted it Stein. And maybe that's why there's all this confusion. In any well, case. I am no longer confused for now and forevermore. And so, and, and no longer are, is anyone watching. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm corrected, I'm corrected. So yes. that's, but you know, it, Lorna loved, uh, you know, who I've had on the show. Uh, she talked about, you know, when people ask her about growing up in a famous household, she says, well, I didn't know anything. This was, these, this was just what I knew. Um, and you're talking about now reading Mary Rogers' book and that world of growing up with this. And I know that your uh, father was on the road a lot. Uh, did you have a lot of friends that you uh, hung out with uh, as you were growing up that were um, also siblings or children of uh, famous parents? Well, again, you know, this blob that I mentioned of, of all these friends, they all had kids, many of them. And so we overlapped with a lot of those kids. They were not necessarily our best friends, but we got thrown together very often. Um, so, you know, Adolf Green's two children, Amanda Green, who is a very successful and brilliant lyricist mm-hmm. for Broadway shows, and her brother Adam Green, who is a fabulous writer, and writes about theater a lot. So Adam and Amanda, we, we kind of grew up with them. They were like cousins, really. And similarly, uh, we overlapped a lot with Betty Condon's two kids, uh, Susanna Kyle and uh, Alan Kyle, but less, less so than with Adolph's and Phyllis's kids. And, and it went on. I mean, there were, there were many overlaps. Um, But what happened was that even though it's true that our dad was on the road a lot and our mother in the early days went along with him quite a lot, we had a world that stayed with us when they were gone. So that world consisted of our nanny, Julia Vega, who was from Chile, just like our mother was, and our father's sister, Shirley Bernstein, who was devoted to us and was sort of like in loco parentis. Whenever our parents were away, she would kind of move in and hang out with us. And that was really fun because Shirley was in some ways not all the way grown up herself. So her idea of fun was to take us to the local uh, country emporium in West Reading, Connecticut. And we would, and they had a penny candy counter and we would buy all the candy we wanted. We were allowed. And then we would take it all home and Shirley would say, and now we're going to have a cavity party. And we would (laughs) sit on the carpet together and throw all the candy in the middle of the circle and eat it all. That was Shirley. So of course we loved when Shirley was in charge, God help us all. And, and I'm sure our dentist thanked us very much. Well, you kept someone in business. <laughs> yeah, well, it shouldn't be a total loss. We managed to uh, make some people happy. Anyway, we were very happy. So that, that was one of the regulars who kept an eye on us when our parents were away. 
I want to talk about this world uh, that your father was, I mean, so many hats that he wore and he crossed so many lines musically. Uh, and was there any particular area or realm of the business that he felt was the most comfortable for him or was it all the same for him? Oh, that's a really good question because uh, I really think that for him, the, the most important thing he felt he could do in the world, the thing he most wanted to do was compose. But composing is lonely. And what my father hated more than anything else in the world was to be all alone. He loved people and he loved to be surrounded by people. And so composing was very tough for him. It was, it was uncomfortable. It, was, it made him melancholy but he felt compelled to compose. So that's why I think he was so often driven to compose for, for the theater, for musical theater, for ballet, for opera, whatever it was, it, at least he had collaborators. And that meant that he had company. There always came that moment at two, three, four a.m. when he would have to put the notes down on paper all by himself, but at least he would be able to share it the next day with whoever the person or people were that he was collaborating with. And I think that really took the pressure off and made it less tough. So he wrote a lot. He wrote three symphonies. He wrote this beautiful violin concerto kind of serenade, which is my favorite piece of his that he wrote for orchestra and solo violin. And he wrote, um, song cycles and you know he wrote so many different kinds of things but he was drawn over and over again to write for theater because mm -hmm. then he would have pals you know? absolutely and writing for the theater uh, once he wrote and it was out there so to speak was he able to just completely release it or was he constantly thinking about what he could have done differently mm -hmm. That's a really good question, too, because there were some occasions when he went back and fixed things. He changed the ending to his second symphony, Age of Anxiety. He changed Candide a couple of times, but Candide has this sort of built-in, it's a kind of curse that it's constantly being toyed with, monkeyed with, played with, changed, altered, and there are many different versions of Candide by now. So anyway, that was one of the ones that, that my father futzed with. Uh, so there were some occasions when he went in there and changed things. And there were other occasions when he just, okay, it's done. It's out there. I'm moving on. And no, that, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go it's ahead. okay. I was just going to say that, you know, the things that he didn't change were a lot of the shows, the other shows, On the Town, Wonderful Town, and West Side Story. And I suspect that one of the reasons he didn't go back to change things is that he didn't have time mm. because he had to run off and do the next big project, conducting in Europe or writing the next thing or whatever it was. But um, Candide had its own special situation because... It wasn't a huge success. It had a, a kind of brief run on Broadway. What, it ran for like, what, a couple of months only, mm -hmm. a few months. And 
and everybody perceived that the book had a lot of problems and that there was so much music. There were like, like two hours of music alone. So inevitably, every time Candide was rethought or reinvented or, or you know, reassembled, some of the music would be set aside because it was just too much. So that's, that's been the sort of built-in struggle with Candide. Now, I uh, want to talk about you and your process. Uh, when you sat down to write this book, first of all, what was your goal with the book? And did your goal turn out the way that you had envisioned it? Or did it completely take on a life of its own once you sat down and started putting pen to paper? You know, it did take on a life of its own. What I, what I set out to do was to answer the question that I was constantly being asked by journalists. What was it like? Hmm. What was it like to grow up in that family with that larger than life father? And so in interviews with journalists, my short answer was, well, it wasn't boring. <laughs> but the longer answer was my book. And I wouldn't have had a book to write had it not been unboring, of course, that there were so many stories to tell and so much fun stuff to discuss and then, you know, the music and the people and then there was a lot to talk about. Um, but, you know, the, the book is a memoir of my own life. So what I discovered as I was writing it was what the book was about when it came to myself. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that was the big discovery that I, I, and, you know, I struggled for so much of my life about whether or not to be a musician myself. And, you know, when I was a little kid taking piano lessons, I always had that voice in my head saying, oh, who do you think you are? This is ridiculous. Listen to the music that's being played and performed around you all the time. It's at the top of everybody's game and you think you're going to come along now and, and learn to play the piano? Like, it all seemed so hopeless. And yet, I decided for a while to pursue a career as a singer-songwriter. And I moved to L.A. and I made demo tapes and I shopped them around to record companies and I looked for a manager, all that stuff. But every second that I was doing that and every second that I was performing my songs on stages, I still had that voice inside my head saying, who do you think you are and why are you even trying? So I was always in knots about the whole thing. And then I accidentally, totally inadvertently, fell upon a solution to my problem. I, didn't, I wasn't looking for it, but it fell in my lap somehow, which was to talk about music, not make it with my own body. And that kept me in the world of music because I was you know, narrating concerts, talking about music and giving talks or, or participating in concerts and giving context for whatever the audience was listening to. Sometimes my father's music, but not always, about all kinds of music. And I discovered completely by accident that I was good at it and that I had no panic about talking I can talk. Hey, I can talk all day. <laughs> Thank God. That's great. Talking is fine. I can talk. And so I discovered... Did this, did this give you the same 
spark uh, or satisfaction that you were getting from the music itself? Well, you know, making music yourself with your own body is, is its own category of euphoria. Yes, and I'm so sure. I think of myself as a kind of musical amputee. Uh, in my book, I describe it as cutting off the ailing limb to allow the rest of the organism to thrive. And so, yes, I regret and I'm sad that I don't make music myself anymore, but I found a way to completely stay in the world of music, surrounded by musicians, performing and getting all that great feeling of, you know, rehearsals and the adrenaline and doing the show and it goes well and then we all go out afterwards and we hang out, you know, all the stuff that musicians do. And so I found a way to be in that world, just not making the music with my own body. And that turned out to be a, a pretty darn good solution to my conclusion. I'm always fascinated about when a writer walks through that door and when the writer walks through that door and sits down and begins to write, it's one thing that these ideas are going through your head. Everyone's asking you the same question over and over and over again. It's a completely different ball of wax to make the commitment to sit down and write the book. When you sat down to write the book, what was the actual moment that was the catalyst for you saying, this is it, I'm doing it now? And did you ever waver from that decision? Well, I had had this notion in the back of my head that I might like to write a mo memoir, but I had all these sort of techie ideas about it, that maybe I could, you know, do something that included images and audio. And I thought, you know, maybe now one can actually create something like that now that we're all so multimedia and everything. Mm -hmm. And so I ran this idea past an acquaintance of mine who was a book agent. And he said, well, these are interesting ideas. Let's talk about this. Come to my office. So I did. And I told him my various ideas. And he said, you know what? I can sell this idea for you because your uh, father's centennial is coming up in 2018. And that will be the moment for you to be able to sell a book. And, and it was like he shot me out of a cannon because I realized, oh, my God, he's right. This is it. This is the moment. You got to do it. it. <laughs> I yes. ran home. I ran home from that meeting and I started writing the book that very same day. And everything I wrote that day, I, I tossed out. But I started. I started <laughs> the process. And by the way, in the end, all my tech ideas got thrown out the window by the publisher but it was okay. They wanted an old-fashioned book, and I was happy to write an old-fashioned book. I really was. And, and did you write in a linear fashion, or I mean, did you keep journals prior to this, I or where did. just? I did. I didn't keep journals every second of my life, but large swaths of my life had journal entries, and they became my absolutely crucial, invaluable primary source. And the, then the other thing was that I told my brother and sister when I got this book deal, I said, look, I'm going to write a memoir, but everything I write, I'm going to run it by the two of you first. And if there's anything that you don't like, or you don't want me to talk about, or you want me to take out, you tell me, and I will do whatever you say.
because the three of us are very closely connected. We call ourselves the three-headed monster, actually. And so it was essential to me, above all else, that my siblings be okay with what I was writing. And in the end, they were unbelievably supportive, Alexander and Nina. They, they basically never said, you can't talk about that or you have to say it in a different way or you have to take it out. They never said that. They really gave me the green light. Well, I have a question about that. I, I mean, being the oldest of four, I left home when I was 18 years old. So I grew up in a household where with a sister and two brothers, even though we all grew up in the same household, our experience of growing up in that household is very different. And that's not the same with what you're describing. Well, there is a similarity in that my brother and I uh, were, were born pretty close to each other, just like two and a half years apart. Nina came along a bit later. And so Alexander and I basically experienced the same family environment. By the time Nina was old enough to be a sentient being and, and uh, perceive what was going on around her, our family dynamic was changing a lot. And so Nina grew up with a very different experience of the family than Alexander and I did. And I, I talk about that in the book because mm-hmm. it, it speaks to how the family itself was evolving over the years. And there were many changes, yes. you know. Nothing stays put. Everything changes. People change. Families change. Relationships change. Circumstances change. That's why we can write books about stuff. Otherwise, it would be a really boring story. But things change. Right? So, yes. And when Alexander and I were little, our parents, you know, it was the late 50s, early 60s. And, you know, all the, 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 the our parents and their friends were all just peaking in their careers and their sheer energy. And they, they were just full of vim and fun. And really, Alexander and I thought, really did think that all grown-ups did was have fun. We couldn't wait to be grown-ups. All they did was, you know, have parties and, and sing songs around the piano and scream with laughter over their charades and their word games and their treasure hunts and like, oh my God, we couldn't wait to do all that fun stuff. And oh, and the glamour of smoking and the drinking, and it was just also glamorous. That's how it seemed to when us. When you describe this in your book, I mean, it's like going back and watching Mad Men. <laughs> Mad so, Men blew my mind for yes. that very reason because it was so authentic, you know? Absolutely. But you describe it. I mean, first of all, uh, Jamie, you are an incredible writer. I hope that there are many more books in your future because the detail, uh, every page, I felt like I was reliving uh, everything that you were describing uh, in your household and uh, in your life. So just brilliant writing. Uh, And you describe the clinking of the ice cubes going into the glasses and, you know, and, uh, and I love the uh, imagery of uh, the uh, cellophane uh, and I, and it brought back memories of my own parents smoking and the cellophane coming off of the wrapper of the uh, cigarette pack 
and I love the imagery of your mom just like putting it behind your ear and those little rolling it up. Yes, it just it just took you right into those moments. Well, um, okay. well that means that my device worked because my whole concept for those early chapters when I was a little kid was to describe the world literally as I saw it as a little kid, which means that it was mostly sensory because I didn't have a lot of language and I wasn't literate yet. And so the way you experience the world as a little kid is completely through your senses. So I was trying to access that. And so, you know, the, the crinkling of the cellophane and, 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 you know, the smell of the cigarette smoke drifting up the staircase and all that sensory stuff is really what I remember from those years. Well, speaking of sensory, do you recall the first time that you heard a composition of your father's outside the home when, if I'm making sense, you heard uh, him composing something and then you heard it out among the masses? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think that happened until I was older. Uh, When I was a little kid, we had the recordings of Candide and West Side Story and on the town. We must have had wonderful town too, but the ones that stand out in my mind from those years were principally Candide on the town and West Side Story. So we, my brother and I, you know, we were playing those records in our bedroom all the time. And so we knew that material, but we didn't really perceive our father's uh, composing process until he was writing Chichester Psalms which is that he was on sabbatical from the New York Philharmonic for one year and was determined to write. He thought he was going to write another Broadway show that year. And he was working on it with Comden and Green, and it was based on uh, The Skin of Our Teeth by Thornton Wilder. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't work. They just had to give it up. Like halfway through his sabbatical year, and he was crushed. He'd already wasted half a year, and he didn't have anything to show for himself. And then he got this... Uh, invitation to write something for Chichester Cathedral on the occasion of their tricentennial, or they had some big anniversary that year. And the dean of Chichester Cathedral said, and could could you please make it sound like West Side Story? (laughs) I'm going to get to West Side Story in a few moments for a reason, but you... uh mentioned earlier that you did write uh, keep journals growing up. Uh, When... Uh, and I'm also a big journal writer. I keep journals myself, but I very rarely go back and look at those journals. Um, had you revisited these journals before you sat down to write your memoir? Um, not so very much. Every now and then, you know, a question would come up about something and I would say, I can look that up on my journal. And so there were occasions when I could go specifically to a certain journal and find the entry and solve the riddle of whatever the question was. But when I had to write this book, I really sat down and went through them all. And it was exhausting. Like, you know, the, just the, 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 the sheer logoria to use one of my favorite words, like just like the, the, the just the endless entries. I found myself saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. (laughs) Much. Did anything really surprise you that uh, about yourself uh, looking back 
that you had completely forgotten. Uh, I, I know that sometimes I'll be writing something and a memory will just come flooding back and it overwhelms me. Sometimes I even have to go for a walk. It's so overwhelming. Uh, did you have those moments as well? There were those moments. Uh, I mean, it, I'm so glad I kept journals because otherwise I wouldn't have remembered a thing. There were, ever, there were occasionally moments when I had a question about something and I would ask my brother and sister, do you remember when so-and-so came to the house and this then that happened? Like, when, when was that? And they could not remember anything at all. And so I was grateful that at least I had a lot of the stuff written down. Otherwise, I would have not remembered 80% of it, if not more. But I, but you know, and, and what happens is that if you're the one who's keeping the journals, your version of events is going to be the version that stands, right? And so nobody can really argue with me because they didn't write it down themselves. So like, okay, I guess that's how it went. So there's that. But um, there were many details about my mother that, that uh, came as a surprise to me. You know, the, the stuff about my dad, in a way I remembered that more because he was so larger than life and there he was. But, you know, my relationship with my mother was, was a subtler thing. And there were things about it that I had forgotten. Uh, I, you know, and, and sad things. And there were many things about my mother that were sad, including how her life ended, because that was all so tragic with her, you know, having these multiple instances of cancer, which eventually killed her way too early. So that, that all of that was very hard to revisit. It was. So uh, the last time that you and I actually met was just before uh, you actually uh, announced uh, at your book signing that uh, Steven Spielberg was going to be doing a new uh, a, a reimagining of West Side Story. And a lot's happened since that film uh, came out. Uh, and uh, one of the quotes that I read that I, and I hope I get the quote right, uh, forgive me if I don't, uh, that you've thought of Sondheim as an uncle and West Side Story as a sibling. Did I get that right? Yeah, you did. Okay, great. You know, but, but Steve, Steve Sondheim was always part of our lives. And he came over to dinner all the time. He, sometimes he came out to our country house here in Connecticut, where I am right now, or to some, we, we would occasionally rent a place for a month or two on Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Cape Cod. And he would come up there for a few days. He was around, he was part of the family. And he was a little tough, you know? He was just so quick on the trigger, you would not want to get on his bad side. But I have to say that he was so nice to the three of us kids. And so he, you know, it's not like he went out of his way to be avuncular or anything. Mm -hmm. But then what, what happened that was so surprising and wonderful is that in the last decade or two of his life, he really remained close to us and to a degree we didn't expect him to be. He invited us to his house, you know, for dinner and to play anagrams and to hang out, you know, like 
He liked our company. We, we, we couldn't believe how great that was. So we had this really warm, easy, funny, delicious uh, connection with Steve really right to the end of his life. And, you know, the week before he died, I went to the opening of Assassins, the really cool production. Oh, yes. Classic yes. Stage theater. And he was there at the same performance, but he was so surrounded with well-wishers and everybody was wearing masks. We were right in the middle of COVID. So I didn't want to go up there and get in the scrum. So instead, I emailed him later just to tell him that I loved the show and I was so happy he was there to see it. And I, was, I apologized for not going up to give him a hug, but it just didn't seem like the right moment. And he wrote me back and he said, oh, I'm so glad you were there. And wasn't it a great production? I, I thought it was terrific. And I really loved that show. And let's get together soon. Let's play anagrams. Let's have dinner. And then he was gone three days later. Unbelievable. So, but, you know, he you was. Know what I love about, uh, what I think about Stephen Sondheim is the fact that the night before he was out having a Thanksgiving dinner with friends. Yeah. Uh, he, it's like the song, I'm going to live till I die. And he lived till he died. He really did. Like, we should all be so lucky and, and exit the stage the way Steve did. He had a great dinner. He was with all his pals and his beloved spouse and his beloved dogs. And he just felt a little yuck. And so he went to bed early and he went to sleep and he didn't wake up. The end. How perfect is that? Right? That's wonderful. We should all be so lucky. And everyone's going to kill me if I don't ask this. A new <laughs> biopic is being made on your father. I was expecting this, yes. Yes. <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say. You run with it. Okay, well, oh, golly. So, yes, Bradley Cooper uh, took over this film project from, it was originally with Martin Scorsese who decided for whatever reasons he had other stuff going on. He, he wasn't going to get to it. And it wound up with Bradley. And then Bradley collaborated with Spielberg as a co-producer of this project. And then they, they took the project to Netflix. So that's the structure. But even though Netflix... Uh, took it over, it will be, it will have a theatrical release to begin with. So they are right in the middle of shooting as we speak. And uh, some of the shooting was here in the States and some of it is abroad. And it's all wildly exciting. And, and it's a gigantic deep immersion for both Bradley, who is not only directing it and producing it, but also starring in it as Lenny. And we are almost equally, we are equally excited about the fact that our mother is being played by Carrie Mulligan. Ah, oh, wow. Is, she's incredible. She's incredible. And, you know, we've, we've seen tiny little peaks at what's going on. And, and she's just unbelievable as Felicia. So, it's going to be an amazing film. And I'm, you know, I, I can't talk about any of the details, of course. All I can say is that I think it's going to blow everybody's mind. It's well, not 
the word that I want to ask is celebration because I'm all about celebrating. Does it celebrate his life? Does it ever? And you know what else it celebrates? It celebrates a marriage. It's very much about Lenny and Felicia. Wow. And and which was a, a, a big, amazing and celebratory surprise for Alexander, Nina and me, you know, that the project has changed a lot over the years and the months. And so it's, it's uh, very much now a portrait of a marriage. And so for us, you can imagine how close and, and touching and emotional that all is. So it's been quite surreal to, to watch this project come together. It's very exciting. It really is. Now, going a step further, could you imagine your book being made into a film? Well, I, can't, I kind of can't. I mean, I could in the abstract, but now that Bradley's film is being created, I, I think that sort of covers that material enough so that there would not probably be another film about the same material. But, a documentary. Yeah, some stuff in my book is likely to wind its way into this movie. So there you have it. Anyway, I think it's going to be just amazing. Well, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. All the photographs that were released, right? Of, of, yes. uh, of Bradley and Carrie in costume as Lenny and Felicia at Tanglewood. They, those photographs were amazing. The photographs are just out of this world. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, I, my theory about most projects, um, and again, I'm all about celebrating. Uh, I'm not interested in gossip and dirt, and that's, I know I am odd in that fashion. Uh, but when it comes to celebrating a person's life, a person's body of worth, I'm all for it. And a lot of people hold on to what was uh, in such a intense fashion that it's hard to see other versions, to see other ways of looking at things. Case in point, the latest film version of West Side Story. I was able to enjoy both films for what they both brought to the table. Uh, and there are so many different, I mean, with all of the projects uh, surrounding your father's work, uh, I'm sure that you're constantly being, you know, you know, asked your opinions of things. Uh, where do you stand on, do you just, reserve judgment uh, on these projects or how do you? Well, um, on West Side Story, I mean, the West Side Story films, I totally agree with you that there's room for both of these movies. I know a lot of people are so fiercely uh, in love with the first movie that they can't even imagine the need for reimagining it or remaking it. But um, I, I felt like there were a lot of things about that film all the way back in 62 or whenever it was. There were a lot of things that are of its era and that could stand up to be revisited. And so I was really glad that Spielberg came along to make a new version. And I think he came up with all kinds of brilliant, creative 
things to do that 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 made it very much a contemporary movie starting with the fact that in the original movie you know hollywood thought it was a great idea to cast the sharks with not necessarily latinx people and then would plaster all that awful brown makeup on them it, mm-hmm. that's what they did in those days so that's right away a, a big big thing to do differently in a new movie and that happened and spielberg went to great lengths to make sure that his sharks cast was completely latinx and they did not wear stupid makeup and and there was this uh, this new degree of authenticity that that was just not in hollywood's wheelhouse back in the early 60s so you know already we've got something fantastically valuable that wasn't there before but there were so many other things too well that's wonderful well as we wind down tonight i've got some wind down questions i'm actually going to give away a copy of your book tonight oh. and the word of the day is fairness uh because we have to be fair to uh, an image of someone uh as uh leonard bernstein and uh you know new versions of films like West Side Story. When it comes to fairness in this business, I'd like your take on the word fairness and what that word means to you in terms of how you navigate these waters in today's world. Well, social media. That's a very large question. And it's, I mean, it's a question that we're all thinking about so much these days. And we're trying in so many ways to repair the unfairnesses of the past. And it's not always so obvious and easy how to make those repairs. And, and, and some, some of the repairs can be um, very, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it turns everything upside down. Disruptive is the word I was looking for. And, and yet these disruptions have needed to happen. And so here we are. And it's amazing to see the lengths to which uh, so many aspects of the arts are going to try and, and make the repairs. And mm-hmm. uh, You know, it, in musical theater, in, in regular drama theater, in art, visual arts, and in literature and television. And I mean, everywhere you look, magazines, you can really, you know, magazines are, are almost in themselves a thing of the past. Really a thing that we hold in our hands and we turn pages, really. But, you know, that, that's where you can most immediately and, and, and graphically, literally, see that, you know, the efforts that people are making to change the level of discourse. In advertising, you see it a lot. You know, if you open Vogue magazine, you know, any time in the past few years, you will see something radically different from what Vogue magazine used to be. And and I'm sure that that upended a lot of people's expectations for what Vogue magazine was supposed to be, both on the making of it side and on the reading of it side. But it's like an explosion of 
making it all bigger. It's a bigger world. It's a, it's a more, you know, variegated universe. And, and it's, it's thrilling. And sometimes it's hard. But I think it's all to the good. It makes us bigger. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've got some questions here. and These are just some random questions. Uh, when do you think that you were the most shocked writing your book? Oh, I was really, <laughs> this is probably not the answer you were expecting, but I was really shocked that my editor told me I was not allowed to have my joke appendix because in our family, you know, we, we love jokes so much. And there are certain jokes that we call life jokes because they, you know, the punchlines or the telling of the joke contain so much important DNA that you can refer to these jokes over the course of your life over and over again because they, they contain the essence of situations that you find yourself in over and over. And so we treasure all of these jokes. Many of them are Jewish, but not all of them. They don't have to be. And so I loved these jokes and, and I refer to them in the course of the book. So I thought it would be really cool to have a joke appendix where I would write out the jokes and then people could refer to the jokes in their entirety if I only quoted, say, the punchline, right? <laughs> I love that idea. That's well, so did I. But you know what my editor said? He said, sorry, you can't do it because... If, if you write them down, they're not funny anymore. It's an oral tradition. And, oh, damn it, he was right. But it really bummed me out that I didn't get to have my joke appendix. Well, the, in the next edition, you got to do it. Oh, right, exactly. Um, I have a calendar. It's called Daily Acts of Kindness, and uh, which I practice. And it says, make gratitude a dinnertime tradition by eat, uh sharing what you're thankful for. I'd like you to name two things that you're thankful for today. Oh, well, only two things? Only two. Well, if you want to go for more, we can go for more. No, it's okay. I'll try and restrict myself. I'm always so thankful for my family because we're so close. I love them so much. We have so much fun together. And we still have this house in Connecticut that we have clung to all these years that we had, that we all came to as kids. So the family and then the house in Connecticut in which to gather the family are these are the two, like the, 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 the linchpins of, of my existence, really. And I never, ever stop being grateful for those two things. That's wonderful. That's great. Um, what are you currently working on? What's next for you? Um, two things. I'm trying to write another book. I actually have written it already, but now I'm just reconfiguring it. So we'll see what that turns into. It is also a first-person memoir-like account, but of other things. So there's that. And then um, just in this past year, I've developed a new presentation about my dad, and it's called Leonard Bernstein, Citizen Artist. And it's aimed at young musicians say in conservatories or universities, because you know, it turns out that young musicians today, they don't really know who Leonard Bernstein is or was, and they don't know why 
he still matters today. And so my presentation is, aims to explain to them why he should be their, mm-hmm. their role model and their, that he's, the, and, and uh, he was the guy in the 20th century who really used music making to try and make the world a better place. And today, there is a much higher premium on musicians learning how to do that. Like, you know, in conservatories now, it's not just ivory tower, practice all alone until you're brilliant and then come out and play with somebody else who's also been in the ivory tower. No, no. Now, take your instrument and go out into the community and play everywhere. Play in hospitals, play for the veterans, play in, you know, senior centers, play for everybody. And it and play to heal and play to unite and to communicate. And that's what my dad's music making was all about, both in his conducting and in his composing. And so he's like the perfect role model for all these young musicians. And I want to make sure they know that. That's wonderful. And I hope that when your book is completed, that you'll come back. I would love to. Thank you. No, I'd love keep me on your list. Um, okay. When do you feel that you were the most humble in your book? The most humbled? Oh, so many times. My my whole book is about feeling humbled. But I guess I felt uh, pretty humbled when my father made me dance with him in that disco in Vail, Colorado. <laughs> who, uh, you know, uh, what what's that uh, Greek bouzouki? song that everybody, uh, you know, it's that, you know, (laughs) and it gets faster and faster and all of a sudden everybody backed off and it was just my father and me dancing and everybody, you know, in a circle clapping at us and I thought I would die. I was 14. Can you imagine? Wow. I, I wanted to just go away and be swallowed up by the earth. In fact, my mother had an expression in Spanish, tierra trágame, earth swallow me, which is what what you think to yourself when you are utterly humiliated. That was my tierra trágame moment in the disco in Vail, Colorado. I love that. Now I pulled another thing from the calendar and this is make a list of underrated things that deserve celebration. Pick your favorite idea and plan an event to celebrate it. What is something in your life that you feel that has been under-celebrated that you feel is worth celebrating? Wow. What a great question. Well, I I mean, you know, I have so, I'm such a music fan. So I would pick Donald Fagan who is, you know, part of Steely Dan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and Donald Fagan had some solo albums that I thought were absolutely brilliant. And one of them was called Kamakiriad, and it was a sort of concept album about a sort of, you know, science fiction car trip. And the songs on that album are so brilliant, I just wish the world knew how great they are. And I would give anything to find a way to put Kamakiriad out there so that people could experience it in some 
musical, theatrical way. Wow. I'm going to go and listen to that tonight. Um, your book, I mean, it's all there, but what do you consider your personal, for those who haven't read the book, and everybody, we're going to talk about how you're all going to get the book tonight. Uh, you, uh, it's all available, but what are your personal truths? In the book? In life. In oh, well, I think uh, I couldn't have written the book without arriving at the personal truth of personal truth, mm -hmm. which is to say, like, you just have to tell it the way it really seemed and felt to me. I, I, I had to tell it in, in a completely genuine, authentic way, not make stuff up, not shy away from the hard parts. And my, what I clung to, you know, my lodestar, I guess you could say, hmm. was that even if you cover the hard stuff, if you tell it in the context of family, love, and connectedness, then it's going to be okay. It's just a story of a family. Every family has its hardships and its difficulties. It's, it's you know, bad moments and it's shames and it, all those things. But if you tell it honestly from the place of love, it's, it's going to be okay. Absolutely. That's all any of us can hope for, I think. How did you feed your soul today prior to today's show? Well, today I drove out to Connecticut from New York, which is always kind of a drag and there's always traffic and it's just a little bit boring. But when I got here, I threw the ball for my dog, uh, he lives for. So he was happy. And then I did my little daily stretch routine, which makes me feel enlivened. And then I jumped in the pool. Yes, we have a pool. Oh, that sounds great. And I swam 30 laps. Good for you. And that, and you know, it's a little bit boring. And so are the stretches. But the way I feel afterwards makes it all worthwhile. It makes you just sit up straight and just feel, you know. That truly cool. is feeding the soul. I've got, a, I've got a quote I'm going to read. The smartest act of kindness is worth more than the greatest intention. Cahil Gibran. So an act of kindness that you shared with someone else today. Huh. Well, I was kind to my dog. And, oh, I was very kind to my son, Evan, whom I left in New York. And before I left, I made him the rest of the bacon so that he could make BLTs with the tomatoes from our garden, which I had brought. Oh. <laughs> Evan, call me. Come on, that was nice. But you know, I, I, kindness is a, is a word that means a lot to me because one of the last things my mother said to me before she died was remember always the most important thing is kindness. Kindness, kindness, kindness. Amen, 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 amen. And this is my last question. Who is the person that you know today with the freest spirit? The freest spirit. Well, I would say she's a very, very close friend of mine and, and, and a very well-known uh, jazz singer. And maybe you know her, Janice Siegel. 
Oh, I love Janice Siegel. Yeah. of Manhattan Transfer. Yes. Janice Siegel is is the the person I most admire for her her energy is unimpeded. And a week ago tonight, I had Alan Paul on the show, and the Manhattan yeah. Transfer are going to be on the show. We're working on a date. Oh, so, you mean all together? Yes, all together. Oh, that'll be great. I'm going to be watching that yes. one. So we're going to give away your book, and uh, thank you all for being here tonight. And uh, thank you all. This is how we do this. My hands are here. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, I had a blast, Jamie. Thank you for doing this. Uh, my friend Aaron Caleb. Uh, Aaron, give me a call later. You owe me a phone call anyway. So I'm <laughs> going to remove this. And I'm going to say a few closing remarks. And then, Jamie, I'm going to turn it over to you. You've got the final uh, re uh, word tonight. Uh, first of all, as I said earlier, the word is fairness. Uh, it's all about being fair to uh, each other, but being fair to yourself. Uh, we need to take time for ourselves. I love the fact that Jamie said that she came in, she took the time with her dog, she went for her 30 laps today and her stretches, and uh, and take the time to read this book. It's an amazing book. Erin, uh, you're going to get the, uh, a copy of the book, but it's available in paperback now. And I'm going to pull up on the screen and show you a way that you can all get it uh, by going... Uh, right to Jamie's website and you can order the book there. And I think you'll sign it if they go to your website. Is that right? Are they, are they able to get autographed copies? You can figure out a way, sure. Figure out ways to do that. Also, they have the option of downloading the Audible book, which I did the narration of myself. So if you're not sick of my voice yet, you can hear me uh, tell you the whole <laughs> book right in your ear. That's wonderful. Um, but... Uh, but I have my own autographed copy to Richard and Danny. We both, so I love this. But anyway, I want it, to, the fact that you said yes to being here tonight, I, I, this has been a blast for me. Uh, I am such, a, not only a fan of your father's, but I'm a fan of yours as well. As I said, you are a brilliant writer and I couldn't put this book down when I read it uh, the first time. And then I went back and reread it to get ready for this. I had a teacher in school, Miss Gerald, uh, and Miss Gerald ended every class by saying, read, reread, and take notes. And I think that's a lesson in life that we should all read, reread, and take notes and pay attention to what's going on out there because there's a lot going on right now and there's a lot of noise out there and we need to take a pause and we need to listen to each other uh, and we need to listen to ourselves as well. Um, if you are here for the first time tonight, I hope it will not be your last time. My show is about celebrating. It's about celebrating art. It's about celebrating artists. And uh, it's about celebrating uh, artists and their body of worth. Uh, so after tonight's show, please go to YouTube, leave a comment on our YouTube uh, comment section. Let us know what you think of tonight's show. Share this with your friends. And then I always end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. What you can do is you can go to your Facebook friends list, reach out to the second name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. Uh, and then order two copies of this book. 
<laughs> keep one copy for yourself and send one to that second friend. They're going to appreciate it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as a dear friend of mine says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. Uh, you never know what someone else is going through right now. And I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So, Jamie, I'm going to leave the screen and I'm going to give you the final word. It can be about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to uh, expound upon, uh, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with tonight. Don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will begin to roll. I thank you for the gifts that you've given to the world and that you're going to continue to give. And I can't wait for the next book. Thank you so much for being here tonight. And uh, this has been a real pleasure for me. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I like having this skipper in my boat. Don't we all? He's terrific. Anyway, well, uh, I, I'm quite abashed at having the final word here. Uh, I would just say thank you all very much for joining in so that we could all, you know, spend this time thinking about all the stuff that Richard gave us to think about, and, and he asked me such good questions. He really did. So uh, that, that was very gratifying. I often think about uh, how my father would feel if he were with us today. He died in 1990, so that was already quite a while ago, and over 30 years, incredibly. And I just wonder how he would be reacting to everything We've been going through the, the contortions in our uh, country and our government and, and you know, all, all the, the, the anxieties and restrictions as a result of COVID. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. My father would have been really bad at social distancing because he was all about giving hugs and, and contact. He loved people, as I mentioned earlier. So... I can't even imagine that he would have been any good at wearing a mask or not, you know, wrapping his big bear paws around everybody and giving these bone crushing hugs that he was so well known for. So he wouldn't have been too good at that. But maybe uh, the lockdown would have encouraged him to get some composing done. So maybe it wouldn't have been for nothing. But I also think a lot about how he would be feeling uh, about uh, the, just the last uh, presidential uh, administration that we had before 2020. And I'm sure all of you who are listening don't necessarily agree with me or would have agreed with my father, but he was an absolute dyed-in-the-wool lefty. He, was, he wrote a, an essay called, I'm a liberal and proud of it. He was that way. And he really believed in reaching out and helping people who needed help and, and using the government to do that. Not everybody thinks that's what governments are for, but he really believed that. And so uh, I often think about how he would have reacted to the world that we've been living in. And, and I think he would have been in agony, really. And so sometimes I wish he were here to help us get through it. And other times I'm kind of grateful that he's not here to have to experience it. Um, when the war began in Ukraine, when Russia invaded Ukraine, I thought about my father a lot because he was born there. I mean, excuse me, his parents were born there. It, both his mother and father came from 
Ukraine. It wasn't called Ukraine at the time. It was part of Russia or, you know, th 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 those borders were constantly changing. But both of his parents fled Ukraine because of the pogroms, you know, the, the soldiers coming in and wiping out entire Jewish villages. So they escaped and came to the United States and built this incredibly successful, thriving life and family here. So I often wonder the degree to which uh, Sam and Jenny Bernstein would, would feel nostalgic about the motherland. They, you know, they, they must have had very complicated feelings about it, and so my father would have also. But my father had very uncomplicated feelings about war. He just hated war. And he felt like war was the most obsolete, antiquated method of resolving differences. And he could not believe that human beings were still resorting to this, this useless and damaging device for solving problems. So I am certain that he would be in despair over Ukraine, which is uh, a situation that, is, that was so avoidable and is creating so much unbelievable hardship. And one last thing I will say, which, uh, which also will, will not be to everyone's liking, is that my father, the other thing he hated besides war, and it's related, were guns. He hated guns. And he advocated for some kind of gun control as best he could during his life. I mean, you know, I was a teenager when both Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated in 1968. And my parents were just devastated by, by the, the, the squandering of, of human value. And now, of course, uh, there is even more squandering of human value going on as a result of guns. And the guns that we have today are so much more damaging than the guns we had back then. So this is yet another thing that my father would have despaired over. So he's not here, and I hope that wherever he is, he has a, a, a higher and more serene way of perceiving the whole situation. But down here, my brother and sister and I will, will be doing the despairing on his behalf. But it's comforting in a way to know that he cared so passionately about these things. And so we go forward carrying his passion and his hope for better times into the future. So, and his music was so full of hope. That was where he put his hope, was in his notes. So when we listen to his music, we feel comfort and we feel the better world that he was painting for us with his notes. And then it feels like maybe we can reach that world. So go listen to his music, it'll make us all feel better. And thank you all for listening and everybody take care. Lots of love to all and be well and safe.